<laughs> Good morning and welcome. Start with some technical issues first. Our live streaming is not working, but they, it will be recorded and placed on the internet. I apologize for any parents that are watching their loved ones give these oral arguments today or family members. Uh, I also want to welcome today um, East Green High School from Greene County. Um, your coordinator, Jill Bonnert, thank you all for coming. So today we're here. We will hear oral argument in the case of Joseph Albert Oberhansley, how do you, Oberhansley versus the state of Indiana. This is a case where the sentence was life without the possibility of parole, so it's a direct appeal to this court. The counsel for the appellant will argue first. And representing the, um, the appellant at counsel table, we have Victoria Casanova. Welcome back, Ms. Casanova. And uh, Karawanaki, welcome. Arguing for the state of Indiana, we have Kelly Loy. Welcome, Ms. Loy. And Andrew Kobe. Welcome, Mr. Kobe. As we have been conducting oral arguments, we generally allow two minutes before we may start asking questions. Counsel, are you ready to proceed? All right. Ms. Casanova. May it please the court, good morning. With the court's permission, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. It's hard to find the right words to describe the crime for which Joseph Oberhansley received his life sentence. But in reflecting on what happened to Tammy Blanton, the words horrific and brutal come to mind. And so I'm not going to stand here today before you and pretend that what happened to Ms. Blanton was anything other than horrific and brutal. Society has an interest in ensuring that those who are convicted of such crimes face justice. And the Indiana General, General Assembly has decided that for some defendants, in some cases, and under some circumstances, a sentence of life without parole is appropriate. In Wright versus State, this court clarified that when the state seeks an LWAP sentence, it is not just the defendant, but society at large that has a vested and even heightened interest in the reliability of the proceedings. But while society has an interest in ensuring that those who commit terrible crimes face justice, that interest does not extend to having a defendant receive an LWAP sentence in contravention of the law, specifically Indiana Code 3550-29L. But unfortunately, that is what happened here. Indiana Code 1-1-2-2 tells us that crime shall be defined and punishment therefore fixed by statutes of this state and not otherwise. In Wilson v. State, this court endorsed the notion that sentencing is a creature of the legislature and we are limited to sentences that have been expressly permitted by the legislature. In Mr. Oberhansley's case, the jury made the first of two statutorily required findings but not the second. As such, the trial court had no authority to sentence Mr. Oberhansley to life without parole. <clears throat> In this case, the lack of the weighing finding required under 3550-29L renders Mr. Oberhansley's sentence illegal and therefore a due process violation. Counsel, there's no, um, there's no disagreement that the jury instructions were correct. 
No, there is no, no disagreement about okay, that. Okay, and I read through all the soliloquy that the judge did talking about, you know, you, answer, you first find if there's an aggravated circumstance, and then second you find if life without parole, but in the interim you've got to do, you've got to weigh the aggravators versus the mitigators. And in this case, your client um, sort of waived his right to talk about his mental health in the case in chief, correct? So he could only talk about it at the, in the sentencing That's phase. correct. And that was a, a bargain made with the prosecutor that the death penalty or capital uh, punishment was taken off the table. Yes, in exchange. So the, the scope of the bargain was that um, Mr. Ober, or Mr. Oberhansley's trial attorneys had filed a notice of insanity. Um, Mr. Oberhansley, pro se, informed the trial court he did not wish that defense to be advanced. Um, and the trial court ruled that the, um, the trial counsel had to respect those wishes. Um, and at that point, there was this agreement reached between the defense and the state that defense, the defense would not um, take any further action on the um, insanity defense issue, um, including not appealing or not challenging the trial court's ruling. I no doubt of- there was no express finding. Why shouldn't we find that there was an implicit finding? I think there are a couple of reasons. I think um, making that assumption... Um, would fall short of what this court said in Wright, which is that we have this heightened need for reliability. And we, an assumption, I think, falls short of that. But more than that, the trial court in its own sentencing order um, didn't find that the jury made the required finding. The, the trial court sentencing statement talks about the aggravators having been found and then talks about the recommendation but doesn't say anything about the weighing finding. But throughout, I saw, saw almost a drumbeat. I, I poured over the transcript and looked at the number of times, whether it was counsel talking about, you can't just find the aggravators, you've got to weigh the aggravators against the mitigators to even answer the second question. So it was no more than a dozen or so times it was in the instructions that you can't just jump to the second question. That space between the first and second question is the mitigators, which were the whole basis of your client's case, bringing in the experts with regard to his um, mental health issues. Yes. So what would be the perfect thing on that jury form? What should they have said? Here's the aggravators, but then you take the aggravators, you're told that you've got to weigh them against the mitigators to get to the second question. So I think it's fair to say that in most cases the jury does get a verdict form to reflect um, that weighing finding. There's a pattern verdict form included um, in the, the pattern jury instructions. There's an actual pattern verdict form for, for juries to make that weighing. But the state's right in their brief when they say that, that 3552.9 does not require a special verdict form for this finding. The only special verdict form required by the statute is the one where the jury finds the aggravator beyond a reasonable doubt. So we're not saying that it has to be a, a verdict form. We're just saying there has to be some documentation or something that shows the finding, whether that's polling the jury or some other way that the trial court wants to do that. But the legislature has said that this finding is required, and it appears nowhere in the record. Um, Yes, the jury was properly instructed. And as this court has said, we assume that a properly instructed jury, or there's a presumption that a properly instructed jury follows the instruction absent evidence to the contrary. The court said that in Gibson. Well, here we have 
evidence to the contrary. Specifically, the jury was instructed that they were supposed to return a verdict form that reflected their weighing finding. They were told to do that. That was in the instruction tendered by the state and given by the court. So they were told to fill out, they, they were told they had to return a verdict form reflecting that, and they didn't do it. So there is evidence in this record that the jury did not follow the instructions. What case from our court best support, supports your argument that an implicit finding isn't good enough? <sighs> if there is such a case. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that there is. Okay. So I, I can tell you that in, in the, the LWAP and death penalty cases that I reviewed, I haven't seen this particular issue. Usually the discussion is, has been for a, like a Sixth Amendment argument, does the jury have to make this, make this weighing beyond a reasonable doubt? That's not what we're arguing here. Counsel, have any of our sister courts in any other states under similar statutes made that a uh, requirement? I haven't found a statute in other states that specifically, like that has our sort of subsection L part. Um, a lot of states, frankly, are, um, it's the way the murder is charged in the first instance that, that makes someone eligible. So um, in a lot of cases, there man in a lot of states, there's mandatory life without parole if you're convicted. And, and this question doesn't even come up. You say you're not arguing for a, 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 a verdict form, but it sounds to me like you are. It sounds like your argument is the jury first has to return a verdict form that says we find an aggravating circumstance, and then they have to return another one that says we find um, that uh, it outweighs the mitigation, and then they have to return a third one that says we recommend life without parole. What? Is that the essence of your argument? No, it's not. I, I would note, though, that the, the power... Well, if they did that, would you not have this argument? Oh, that's absolutely correct. If that had been done, wouldn't have this argument. Or if the court had pulled the jury wouldn't have this argument. If there was some place we could point to in the record to say, here's, here's the finding. Here's the finding the General Assembly said has to be made. So you're, it's not the verdict form. You're saying in the sentencing order there is no mention of weighing the aggravating against the mitigating. Well, this, the, because the sentencing was to a jury and not the judge, Pittman makes pretty clear that a... Um, um, a, I think it's Harrison, I think is the case. A Harrison style. Um, but the judge did say this. I mean, she said, you found the aggravators, and then I'm finding sufficient evidence to um, impose the LWOP. Within that would be the evidence of the aggravators versus mitigators. But your, your point is that no, you need to specifically in your sentencing order say some magic language. No. I, I, I disagree on the first premise okay. that, about sufficiency. So this court has made very clear that the weighing part d is not um, amenable to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So, so when the trial court talks about sufficiency, it's necessarily talking about the finding of the aggravator beyond a reasonable doubt because there has to be sufficient evidence because that is subject to the beyond a reasonable doubt requirement. It's not required for the, the, weighing, the weighing finding. Um, the, this court has said that when the sentencing is to the jury, not the judge, that the, the trial court's sentencing statement does not have to specifically lay out all the findings. But again, there does have to be some evidence of it in the record, some indication. 
All um, the times the judge said that that's the job with regard to the weighing is not enough? No, it's not enough. Um, and, and I think it's the General Assembly who's told us that it's not enough. In this case, just to first, with regard to looking at um, your client's history, this was the second time he'd killed a romantic partner. He had, yes, 15 different juvenile adjudications, and um, he had a strangul strangulation charge pending. I mean, there's a lot of evidence. If we find that there was something, it's just fundamental error and automatic per se goes back, or there's a lot in this record with regard to the brutal killing, the, the, the facts of this case are just un, are gruesome with regard to what he did with yes. her body after yes. he killed her. He had killed before. He had pending charges, violent charges. He had a violent history. So I think the appropriate remedy if the court finds that, in fact, as we've argued, they're, they're, the jury didn't make the weighing finding or there's nothing in the record to, to show that they did, I think there are two possible appropriate remedies. I think this court could impose or order be imposed a, a sentence of a term of years um, because, again, 3552.9L says that an LWAP sentence cannot be imposed unless the two findings are made. Um, so the court could remand it with an order to impose a term of years, or the court could remand it for a new sentencing hearing. Um, Chief Justice Rush, I'd like to go back real briefly to something you just asked about, which was can't we, basically can't we assume from the fact of the recommendation that the weighing was made? <laughs> I think if the trial court could rely solely on the fact that the jury recommended life without parole to find that they w made the weighing determination, then 3552.9L would be rendered superfluous. The General Assembly could have written the statute to say before, um, before the trial court can impose an LWAP sentence, it has to find that the jury made this recommendation, right? The General Assembly could have told the trial court, you can assume that along the way if you get to the recommendation point. But their statute wasn't written that way. Um, and so I don't think that the, um, the legislature intended us to make this assumption. They were very clear that they wanted these two findings. These two findings must be made um, before that sentence can be imposed. What term of years do you think is appropriate? Well, the maximum sentence Mr. Overhansley could receive for his crimes of conviction is 77 years. How do you, how do you get that? Um, 65 years for the murder and 12 for the burglary. Ser served consecutively? Yes. Yes. You think that's an appropriate term of your sentence? I think it's a lawful sentence, unlike the LWAP sentence that he received. Um, I, I think our, um, our 7B argument would be much harder um, if he received a sentence of 77 years of supposed life without parole. Um, it would be hard to argue that the maximum sentence in terms of a term of years would be inappropriate in this case. Because it's a credit restricted, when, when would, when would, if, you, we would, if your argument, when would he be eligible to be released given that this is a uh, credit restricted crime? It's, that's a math question, which I'm not great at math, but I know it's... Um, I, I would have to do some calculations, but I can. There's always rebuttal. Yeah, I can do that. Um, if the court has no additional questions at this time, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Ms. Loy. 
May it please the court. Defendant has not identified a constitutional or statutory provision requiring the jury to, to return a special verdict form to memorialize the jury's balancing process in recommending a sentence of life without parole. As acknowledged by a defendant, his jury was properly instructed that they must find the aggravating circumstances outweigh the mitigating in accordance with Indiana Code Section 3550-29 and is presumed to have followed those instructions. Defendant has failed to rebut this presumption. His claim that the jury did not make the finding or that even if they did, we have no way of knowing is based on pure speculation and is contrary to law and facts. Because he did not object below and received the process that he was due, defendant cannot show that a fundamental error occurred or an error so prejudicial as to deprive him of a fair proceeding. Likewise, defendant has failed to show that his sentence is inappropriate. His sentence is not an outlier, and defendant has not presented any compelling reason that warrants this court to override the jury's sentencing selection. Defendant made numerous calculated decisions over a period of a couple of days to pursue his ex-girlfriend, Tammy, because she broke off their relationship. Defendant admitted that he pursued her because he was upset with her. Defendant has a significant and violent criminal history. Tammy's murder is the second fatal domestic violence act committed by defendant by his, uh, in his 30s. And despite numerous experiences with the criminal justice system, opportunities to address mental health, and the support of family and friends, defendant continued to use methamphetamine and failed to comport his conduct in accordance with the law. Are you, are you arguing to us why 7B isn't warranted here? Is, is that what you're, is that, what, what you're recounting just now, is that your argument for why 7B relief isn't appropriate? Why it's inappropriate? I'm sorry. Are, are, you, are you arguing issue one or issue two about 7B right now? The, both, Your Honor. Um, that defendant has not shown either the nature of the offense or the character of the offender requires so let's, let's begin with Roman 1, if you would, please, their first argument. Why, in your view, is the lack of an express finding not fatal to the state's case? Oh, as it relates to the finding of the weighing of the aggravators and mitigators. Yes, their, their, their first argument. Yes. The, first of all, the defendant has waived the claim because... He, How so? Because he didn't tender any specific verdict form that had the weighing of aggravating and mitigators. And is, that his, is, is that his job? It, it's the state's burden to establish that there was this finding of the, the weighing, that the aggravators outweigh the mitigators. He, he, doesn't, he can sit by and just let the state do what it's going to do, let the court do what it's going to do, and if there's no finding, is why isn't that fatal to the state's um, LWAP uh, argument? Well, this court has said in Pope v. State that it is fatal to his argument, that he cannot just stand by and allow either incorrect or omitted verdict forms to be submitted to the jury. And that was in a penalty phase in a life without parole context. And so under Pope, under this court's decision in Pope, that is waived. And, and what's that site, please? Sure. It is in my brief, and it's 737 Northeast 2D 374, and that's um, the year 2000. 
This court has also addressed it in Shiro v. State, which is referenced in Pope. Um, that reference is 451 Northeast 2D, 1047, and that was in 1983. Specific, and Shiro was also in a penalty phase for life without parole proceedings. Does the penalty phase matter? For example, if this were a, if this were a, a guilt phase question and the, the instructions erroneously omitted one of the essential elements of the crime, um, defendant doesn't object to that, but doesn't, doesn't, isn't there still a, a principle of law that says, regardless of what the jury's, what, what the instructions say, there must be indeed a finding as to each element of the offense? And, and likewise, must, must there not be a finding as to each element of the, the sentence here, which in this case is the aggravators outweigh the mitigators? I think the, the importance, first of all, is because the defendant claims that because it's in a sentencing proceeding, that he cannot waive this particular claim. So that's one reason why it's important. Um, the other is, in this case, the court, or I'm sorry, the court properly instructed the jury to find um, not only the aggravating circumstances, to return a special verdict on those aggravating circumstances, but that in order to recommend the sentence of life without parole, they had to engage in a particular balancing process, and that is to find... Well, I, I don't think their argument, though, is that the jury was so, improperly charged. The question is the jury didn't make the finding that the statute requires. There, there are... It, first of all, this court has not discussed it, as, has not referenced this as a finding. They re, it's not a verdict. This court has said it's not a verdict. It is a balancing and a weighing process, and it's part of the process that is involved in recommending a sentence of life without parole. Counsel, if we required that, wouldn't we have to do that in the guilt phase too, um, thereby requiring juries to, to, uh, to find, to tell us affirmatively that yes, the state has proven this element beyond a reasonable doubt, rather than being instructed that that's what they have to find and then returning a guilty verdict. Yes, Your Honor. There, there are several examples um, specifically as to either guilt phase or other bifurcated proceedings such as habitual offender um, proceedings where there are preliminary either facts or decisions that need to be made by a jury before rendering an ultimate verdict. We typically don't, in a guilt phase, we don't ask the jury to first tell us that the elements have been, have been satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt and then tell us their verdict is guilty. That's correct. If they're properly instructed, which in this case the defendant admits that they were, that a verdict on the ultimate decision of guilt is saying that the, that the state has satisfied their burden as to the elements. In trial rule uh, 49 specifically abolished special verdicts and interrogatories to the jury for these type of questions um, regarding the decision-making process. And that applies here. <clears throat> so this is something, this is a question, it's part of the decision-making. And the jury responded with the verdict that they recommend life without parole. Because they were properly instructed, because they returned that particular verdict form, because the presumption is that they followed the instructions, this court can be assured that they engaged in the proper weighing of the sentencing circumstances. If we disagree with you on that threshold question, what's the appropriate remedy in your view? It would depend on the, the nature of the disagreement, but, but 
generally, this court has said that they have three options when there's an anomaly in the sentencing or penalty phase of a life without parole or capital case, and that is to either remand it back for a new sentencing hearing with a jury, um, remand it back for the trial court to decide sentencing, or this court has engaged in appellate reweighing. And, and in this case, um, and which of those three do you think is appropriate here? Here, depending on the nature of the error that you find. Um, My hypothesis is, is the error that they've identified. The no, no finding. The due process error would be to remand it back for the uh, state to pursue another jury, impanel another jury, and pursue new sentencing proceedings. But because this this error is not fundamental and is subject to harmless error review. Also, appellate reweighing um, would, would address um, any anomaly in the court's instructions below. Walk us through what that would look like in your view. Appellate reweighing? Yes. This court has engaged in appellate reweighing on a number of circumstances, and that is essentially um, that the, any error was harmless given the nature of the crime. So in this case, this court could consider that the jury was not going to recommend or did not engage in the proper functioning and recommended life without parole because of the nature of the circumstances here, which defendant has conceded is, is heinous and brutal. Would um, you agree with Ms. Casanova's statement that the maximum term of your sentence would be 77 years, the 65 plus 12? Your Honor, I did not do the math. I don't disagree that that would be, that that would be the total. The burglary could run consecutively to the murder. As to the appropriateness review, as this court has acknowledged, defendant has a very long violent criminal history. He was also charged with several violent crimes at the same time that he was arrested and charged with murder in this case. The defendant has only proffered one reason to revise the sentence of life without parole. And that sentence does not, I'm sorry, and that reason does not compel warranting revision of the sentence in this case. If there are no further questions, Your Honors, we ask that you affirm the sentence below. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Casanova, rebuttal. Your Honor, my, my co-counsel was kind enough to do some calculations for me, and she I think rightly says that with credit time, a 77-year sentence would result in about 65 and a half years actual, um, given the credit restrictions. So he would be in his 90s by the earliest time he would get out. Yes. Um, also, if we if we if we accept um, sort of the core of your argument that this the evidence of this intermediate step is required, why, why wouldn't that also hold true in the guilt phase? Why wouldn't we also then have to require specific findings from the jury, evidence of specific findings that they found each of the elements beyond a reasonable doubt, rather than just accept their guilty verdict? Because the nature of the statute that we're dealing with here is different. So 
So 3552.9L says that before a sentence may be imposed under this section, um, a, the jury must find that the state has proved beyond a reasonable doubt that at least one aggravating circumstance listed in subsection B exists, and any mitigating circumstances that exist are outweighed by the aggravating circumstance or circumstances. So that's like, um, it's a block on the trial court's ability to impose that sentence. The, the legislature could have left that part out and just said, once the recommendation's made, we're good, and you can impose the sentence. But, but they, made, they wrote this very specifically to say, we have to have these two findings before the sentence can be imposed. Counsel, you're saying that this turns on the nature of the statute, but you're making a constitutional due process argument. So doesn't it have to turn on the nature of the liberty interest? Well, I think it's the statute that creates the liberty interest, right? Because it, because like in Hicks, um, Hicks versus Oklahoma, which we discussed at length in our brief, the the General Assembly here has decided that um, before a sentence is imposed, an LWAP or death sentence is imposed, these findings have to be made. It's analogous to, in Hicks, where um, the defendant under state law was entitled to be sentenced by a jury, to have the jury determine his sentence. And in Hicks, the court discussed at great length why that created a liberty interest. He had an expectation, uh, the defendant in that case had an expectation, reasonable, that he would not be sentenced except pursuant to statute. And um, additionally, um, this court and the General Assembly also have said that sentences are the sentencing range or a trial court's ability to, to impose a sentence is limited by statute. Courts don't have any more sentencing discretion than has been provided to them by the legislature. See, and I'm really struggling with this because you, you, you have A, you've got to get to A, the aggravator, and then you've got to find that, and you've got to do some work after A to get to B, and that's the LWOP. Everything about this hearing, all the testimony, there was a tremendous, was de- dealt with mitigation, all of it. All the argument was get to mitigation. The jury was drumbeat, told, listen, you can't get to two unless you do the, you know, unless you do the weighing. The court found that they did it sufficiently. I don't know why you're saying that there was a liberty interest or something happened to him when <coughs> there's a lot of due process that he had in presenting all of the evidence of mitigation that came out. The attorney did a good job, the state did a good job, the, the judge did a good job with regard to saying what to get to question two. You don't even get to question two if you find that you, it's going to be a term of year. You don't get to the LWOP unless you do this balancing. I'm not understanding where the due process, fundamental due process, because it wasn't a magic line, and it, along with what Justice Massa, we don't require that everything be in the jury, jury form. Um, the jury was told so many times this case at this point is about weighing the mitigators versus the aggregators to get to Elwha. And the jury was told an equal number of times that they had to return a verdict form that said what their weighing was. And again, we're not saying it has to be a verdict form. Should they have just written in something? The, the trial court should have asked them. If there was no verdict form returned, the trial court should have asked them because the buck stops with the trial court here. The trial court cannot impose an LWOP sentence unless this finding's been made. The finding wasn't made. So if the trial court was going to impose that sentence, it needed to ask. It, it bears the ultimate responsibility. But they did find the court is sitting there in the position, in the heat of the moment, everything's weighed out. Hey, you've done enough. We have enough evidence. 
on this aggravated versus mitigator, and I think that's what that, the court meant. The court finds sufficient evidence to support the jury's deliberation, and the sufficient evidence in an LWOP case is balancing the mitigators and the aggravators. Well, I, I think that's contrary to what this court has held. The court, this court has held that the weighing is not subject to sufficiency. So the court, trial court's discussion about sufficiency has to have been about the aggravator. This court t- said in, um, I think it was Ritchie, talks about how this is the, the weighing finding or weighing determination, whatever you want to call it, um, is not something that can be um, subject to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There's no quantum of proof. It just has to outweigh. It's just a, a finding or a determination. Um, before my time runs out, I'd like to talk real briefly about the question of waiver and fundamental error. Um, <clears throat> So in Reed, this court said that trial counsel need not object to preserve sentencing error for review and then cited to Kincaid. In Kincaid, this court found that a defendant did not forfeit his Blakely claim, which is a Sixth Amendment sentencing claim, for failure to object. Mr. Oberhansley has raised a constitutional sentencing claim, and like in Kincaid, this court should find it's not waived. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. And students, you were able to view just two fine jobs of argument today. Appreciate counsel's work. We will be discussing the case and issuing an opinion in due course. Thank you very much. All rise.